You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 39 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, C.C. Johnnett and David Ian Howe. In this episode, Amley Van Alts, PhD candidate at the Indiana University Bloomington, has returned to deliver some exciting news and to fill us in on the current state of indigenous archaeologies in the field. Emily was one of our first guests on the podcast, appearing in episode three, Rock Arden and Roland with Emily Van Alts, which I originally wanted to title the episode Painting with All the Colors of the Rock Art. So please join us in welcoming Emily back to our show. Emily, thank you so much for being on. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as one can do in a global pandemic. Thanks for having me back. It's always a lot of fun to uh, chat with you guys about archaeology. We're glad to have you back. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, just knowing you personally, how many days have you left your house since this pandemic began? I think six days. What? Yeah. So fun fact, I actually had open heart surgery when I was a baby. Oh. Heart was pumping blood backwards, wild. So I'm totally good and fine now. It's just like probably wouldn't be the best if I got COVID. So I have been like basically full quarantine since March 13th, which is when I took my qualifying exam. So it was like the last day that everybody saw each other. And now I'm just stuck in my house working on various projects. So that's wild. That's a long time to be in your house. I'm really sorry. Yeah, no, it's you know what? It is what it is. I'm trying to make the best out of it. But yeah, it's kind of wild. <laughs> You guys have some pretty sweet digs in Bloomington and you got two cats, Lincoln, Zelda, and of course you have Max. So it, yeah. it could be worse. It could be worse. It's just a lot of video games and TV. So yeah, it could be worse though. <laughs> Indeed. So since we last had you on, I believe in like April of May in 2019, almost two years ago. Yeah. What have you been up to? Um, you just mentioned you, 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 you've become a PhD candidate and you did your quals, but what else is going on? Yeah, so I finished up my coursework and I sat down for my qualifying exams, which was written and uh, oral defense of my answers. And part of that was writing about and talking about indigenous archaeology and where I think that is going to sort of go in the, into the future, especially with our generation, Carlton, I and others. And so one of the other things that was supposed to happen, but COVID was Carlton and I had put on a panel. We're going to put on a panel at Society of American Archaeology about indigenous archaeology. And unfortunately, got, that got canceled. But that was one of the things that Carlton and I were working on. And currently, I'm actually the American Indian Studies Research Institute graduate fellow. So I essentially get to work on my own research for this year, which is really awesome. And I'm really fortunate for that opportunity. And I've really just been working mostly on this edited volume that we're going to talk about tonight. And I've been working on a Wintergren grant for my dissertation research. And hopefully, fingers crossed, if technology will allow it, I'll be submitting my National Science Foundation grant Tuesday of this week. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but for those who know, Grant writing is is basically writing your pre-dissertation. So trying to figure out your your sort of your theory, your methods, all those things, which can be really helpful before you go to sit down to write your dissertation. So that's sort of what I've been working on since. Just a couple of small things, grants, yeah. life, you know, things. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, life. <laughs> Mac and I got engaged. So, you know, just a few small life things that have happened. <laughs> congrats. Thanks. Congrats, congrats. Yeah. yeah. Thank, you. thank you. So I don't know if you have continued to listen to the podcast since your your episode or if you just tuned us out. Um, and if you did, that is perfectly fine because I, I, I don't even like hearing myself talk. Um, but... If you have listened to anything, have you noticed any changes in, in either good episodes that you liked or things that we've done through the podcast? Yeah, I admit that I don't listen to podcasts as much as I probably should as a good academic. But you guys, it's been just crazy to see how much you guys have taken off and how many listeners you have versus like, you know, I was episode three. I don't know. I think all of your episodes are really, really good. I'm slightly partial to uh, Mackenzie Corey's because he is my fiance. But that was actually a really, I think, really important discussion that you guys had about the archaeology of childhood, um, but also sort of the end and discussing, you know, issues with advisors. I think one of the things that I really appreciate about your guys's podcast is it's not just, you know, people's research. And obviously that's important. And you guys are showing off sort of young researchers. But I think the other thing is you guys talk about sort of the ins and outs of academia and of, you know, working in this discipline. So I'm really happy to see that. Um, I think it's really important to do that when you're doing this sort of sci like SciComm type stuff. So, Yeah. You guys are doing an awesome, awesome job. There's also a lot of singing in that episode for some reason. Yes, there's <laughs> also that. <laughs> and you guys just continue to have a really fun time. You guys are really entertaining as co-hosts. So that's always nice when you're listening to a podcast, keeping it lively, not just academic stuff. Yeah, I was actually uh, re-listening to Max's episode this morning as I was like making breakfast and just like laughing the entire time. There's definitely been. That is, uh, in my opinion, one of my more... In, enjoyable episodes like I, I mm. love every episode that we've done just some are easier to go back to and, and smile about and not cringe and I think Max is is one of those it's because yeah, I was yeah. gone for half of it <laughs> <laughs> your Maybelline commercial got in the way dude it's all it's okay <laughs> kind of looking forward for you what do you envision doing this next summer if you know the world keeps itself together and there's a vaccine and you're allowed to go do field work what do you what do you anticipate doing yeah so fingers crossed there's a lot of sort of you know other factors that play into this but um the hope is that um i would get either a winter grant or a national science foundation grant and be able to do research and that entails going to rock art sites um, visiting with community members and doing interviews and those sorts of things, those sort of methods that go into my my dissertation research. But it's really hard with COVID, not only because it's like my own personal safety with COVID, but also, you know, Native people are some of the hardest hit communities right now with COVID. So um, it's really based on what the Oglala Sioux tribal government, you know, decides on on safety issues with COVID. If not, I do winter grin this year, ask for a plan B. So if COVID gets worse. And so basically I'm trying to figure out how to do this virtually, digitally and keep it as safe as possible. But fingers crossed, I get to go into the field, visit 
a few more rock art sites, hopefully take community members to those sites to do some indigenous interpretation. Since I've talked to you guys for episode three, I've also added a ethnobotany component to my research because I think plants are are definitely part of this sort of larger landscape surrounding rock art sites and might give us a few clues. There's actually an article that came out in CNN, I think, like two weeks ago, how they found plant remains at a rock art site and they used those plants. They're called pinwheels to actually interpret the rock art images. They thought they were just geometric. They were actually plants. So I think there's definitely this connection that exists between plants and rock art. So that's definitely another sort of component I'm hoping to to research in the summer. Yeah. And you missed out on, a, on an opportunity because of COVID this last summer. So what were you supposed to do during the summer of 2020 and what did you end up doing instead? So I was supposed to go to the south of France um, with Casey Carlson and Damn. yeah, and do, uh, do like a photographing uh, rock art sites in the south of France, going to them, seeing some of the oldest rock art images in the world, which has always sort of been a dream of mine. Um, and then COVID happened, <laughs> which is such a bummer. But hopefully one day I'll get to go to France. And that was funded by who? Oh, yeah, that was funded through Society of American Archaeology, their National Science Foundation indigenous training grant that they have. So I was supposed to to go there through that fellowship. So, yeah, it was definitely kind of like really kind of, <laughs> but hopefully in the future that will that will happen for me. But instead, I was really fortunate enough to work for the new Indiana University Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology, which I call UMA, but I don't think that that's catching on quite yet. (laughs) Um, But I hate having to say the big, long, uh, you know, title. But they basically merged the ethnographic part of a museum and the archaeology part of a museum to create the Archaeology Anthropology Museum here. And, and combining those collections, which is cool. But they had their very first sort of the inaugural Native American Summer Fellowship. And because it was digital, actually, instead of two Native American fellows, we had five Native American fellows. Actually, Carlton ended up being one of our guest speakers. And he told us yeah, all yeah. about the work that he's doing with the Pawnee Nation, which is was awesome. That was one of our students favorite talks that was given for the fellowship. So I worked on that and met five really amazing Native women who are working in anthropology, archaeology and museum studies. Two of them are actually going to be in this edited volume because of their work. And it was amazing. It was such a it was so cool to get to meet them, even though it was virtually um, and see the work and see how they're indigenizing museums. So that's what I did this summer on top of teaching a class and working on my prospectus and a National Science Foundation grant. So though COVID happened, I had a very busy summer. Well, that's super awesome. Uh, good, good job getting things done. Thanks. <laughs> I wish I could say I did like a, a 16th of that or even a little bit of that. Uh, that's that's super cool. Uh, Carlton, do you mind talking about what you presented on or is it is it kind of still building off your uh, PhD stuff? No, I think if I recall, it was more of it wasn't like uh, uh, talking about my research. It was more of a um, Emily and Ed Herman, Dr. Ed Herman asked me to kind of talk about my experiences as an indigenous person, anthropology museum. So it was more of a like, this is what I do with the Pawnee Nation. This is how I do it. And like, as these are my 
um, experiences as, you know, a, a mixed person, you know, passing white. So that was kind of brought up and uh, really just kind of like telling these these students, like, even though we were sitting on like two, three decades worth of progress in incorporating indigenous ontologies into uh, anthropology museums, like y- there's still work to be done. And you guys need to recognize that as up and coming scholars, that this is not a golden brick road that will bring you to Oz, that uh, you need to be prepared f- to overcome challenges and uh, recognize the best paths for you moving, moving forward. Yeah, they're called, we called them workshop Wednesdays. And they were essentially, yeah, we wanted to bring in specifically native scholars working in museums and anthropology so that one, we are connecting the fellows to other native people working in their field, um, which can be kind of hard to do that sort of connecting, especially with the pandemic. And these are all, you know, students who have just graduated with their BA um, or just started grad school. So, you know, very young scholars. And so, yeah, we did workshop Wednesdays with Native people. And, we, you know, we talked about all sorts of different issues when it comes to being a Native person in anthropology um, and working in museums. And, yeah, Carlton was great. He talked about all sorts of things. And I think it was good for them to see, you know, another young Native person doing this type of work. And it was awesome. Carlton gave a, a kick-ass talk. Thank you. And who else did you guys have on workshop Wednesdays? Oh, we had we had Sonia Adelaide give a talk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Squeal. Yeah, that was amazing. We had one of my aunties, Royce Freeman, who she actually is working on I think they're going to be done next year, the new Mandan Hadatsa Rikara Museum, which was very cool and she's a PhD candidate at Oklahoma. So she's finishing her PhD while opening up this museum for her nation. And then yeah, Sonia Adelaide, which was great. And then we had uh, Jesse Ricker Crawford, who works at the American Indian Arts Institute. Um, and she specifically is a professor in indigenous curation for them. So we had her speak and that was also amazing. So we had a we had a lot of really amazing Native scholars come in and give us talks. So I've always had a question, much like the, you know, society of people who hide the truth about giants and aliens that we belong to do indigenous like students in the SAA or, you know, just in archeological like circles, like, do you guys have a group or like, you know, group chat or, you know, conference, like separate conference that you guys all like chat with, like to collaborate on all these things? Or is it just at the SAAs that you guys all kind of meet up and collaborate as well? It's weird. I feel like I've met people mostly like other native folks online, like through Twitter um, and Instagram, like how like that's how I've gotten followers and met people. I met Carlton at a Plains conference like what was that like three years ago, I think. And then I've met a few other folks at at SAAs, but we don't have like our own. I think there's like a society of native anthropologists, but there I don't think there's one of archaeologists. But I do know that it's been talked about like, yo, we need to get all these like native archeologists in a room and talk about stuff. Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember you and Carlton going like to, I, it was like a, a student hour or something like that at the essays in Albuquerque, but I couldn't remember. But, um, <laughs> the native American welcoming thing. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so funny? 
It, was it, was took, it took like an hour because it, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I caught it. Go on. <laughs> no, it's just like you were saying that it like took like like an hour or two just to get through like introductions. Oh, right, like, right, yeah. yeah. It was just like a, it was a whole thing. Because we did yeah. lunch, then we did the giant thing, and then we we did that. Yeah, it was like. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's like they wanted everyone to introduce themselves and it's like it's just an hour of people going on in the, around the room and you're just like, Jesus. And then it's kind of like over. It's yeah. like really weird. There's not really a presentation. It's like we just want everyone to I don't know why I'm doing this voice. We just want everyone to, um, you know, know each other. And it's like and, and nothing really comes comes out of it. It, it in a meaningful yeah. way. I mean, I'm, I've met like Larry Zimmerman through that because I was like, oh, that's what he looks like. Um, <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh, that's so real it, what ends up happening is there's all these people from like older archaeologists that show up that have been really great allies to native people like i met meg conkey there and like died but that's you it's a lot of like you get there and you're like oh my god there's that like famous archaeologist but then you don't actually like have the gumption to go introduce yourself you're just like wow i can't believe i'm in the same room as them and then you just leave so yeah uh, but, yeah. Um- and on that note, we are going to leave this first segment and peace out, and we'll catch you on the next one. Welcome back to episode 39 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Emily Van Alst. You might remember her from, was I third episode of a Life in Ruins podcast? Episode Trace. Yep. Yep. Cool. Sweet. Emily. Yes. Take it away. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was the best segue. Just not an introduction. Just like, just hey, have it. Just do what you want. Okay. I mean, I'm not the host, but I'll try my best. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So, Emily, I hear there's an interesting story about how you and Carlton decided to get this edited volume together. Do you mind telling it to us? Sure, I can do that. So Carlton and I were hanging out, I think it was, what, 2019 SAAs, which was in Albuquerque? 2019, it was at the Wyoming Roundup. Yes, so it was at the Wyoming Roundup, which I got to go to because Mac. And plus, I know so many Wyoming people at this point. And Carlton and I were sitting at, I don't even know what the bar was called, but it was very, you know, Southwest. And I think Carlton ordered like two tequila shots and I remember taking the shot and then looking at Carlton and Carlton being like, we got to change archaeology. And I was like, that seems like a (laughs) really large request and I'm not sure how we're going to do that. And he's like, no, we got, we got to do this. I'm like, okay. So I remember taking out my phone and we wrote notes. I don't know if they were necessarily coherent notes, but we did talk about creating a SAA like large session about indigenous archaeology, like what are the next steps? And we specifically talked about how the majority of indigenous archaeology that's been written about in an academic context has been incredibly theoretical. And I think that this new generation of archaeologists are really interested in putting that sort of into practice. What do indigenous archaeology methodologies look like? And so I think we wrote a few names down of like native folks that we knew And then we didn't really talk about it for a while. And then it was, I think, when SAAs is like, hey, you should do a session email. Uh, Carlton and I chatted on the phone. We're like, we should we should actually bring people together and do this. So we contacted a bunch of people and we got the session of like, you know, it was going to go. And about a month before SAAs, we got contacted by University of Florida Press 
and they apparently had gone through the like giant book that ends up happening of like all the sessions with all the people presenting at SAAs. And they were like, yeah, we think that your session is really interesting and we think it would be a great edited volume. And we were like, okay, we have no idea how to do this, but that sounds cool. And like, that's the, like the golden ticket on your CV. Right. So COVID happened and obviously essays got canceled we were really bummed. But then I decided to reach out to see if Florida Press would still be interested in doing a volume. And the acquisitions people were like, yeah, this would be really, really fantastic. So we decided to 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 go for it and do an edited volume. But we had to do a proposal. So Carlton and I spent like what, all of August? It took a long time. Like the process from like U- University of Florida Press reaching out to us to like literally four hours ago when I finally signed the contract was several months, like at least six months. Basically been all of COVID. Yeah. It's been like March to now. <laughs> so, yeah. And it was brutal. Yeah. So stuff they don't tell you about when it comes to academia and publishing is that you have to like, just because somebody reaches out, like a press reaches out to you, you're like, Oh, awesome. Cool. Like we, are probably going to get this book or whatever. It was like, okay, now you have to do like, what was it, Carlton? Like a three to five page proposal? I have the document up actually. Okay. Yeah. So all single spaced, by the way, you have to come yeah. up with the title, of the damn thing, description, mm-hmm. who's your audience, other books, schedule and specifications, author, editor information, annotated table of contents, abstracts for chapters, CVs, work sample. It was, it was a lot. And the, Emily will be first author on this editor volume because she did all of this. Like it was very much like we, from the beginning, it was like Emily will be first author because she's actually like a functioning academic. Whereas I am just kind of like, Oh, thanks. (laughs) Forrest Gump and just kind of do what I'm told. And so uh, this is mostly all this is, is Emily, but compromised out of that was I got to write two chapters in the book with Emily being a co-author on one of those. So it's like, we're, we're, we're sharing but yeah. yeah and then we uh i literally just signed the contract four hours ago yeah thinking about this it, it was it was a lot and there was meetings because yep. we thought just having someone reach out to us and tell us we're brilliant we're like okay <laughs> that's the golden ticket into the chocolate factory yep and it was like no we think this is interesting but you have to prove it's interesting to our committee and we had a resounding first first time we want this book Yep. So you had to write a pre-book for the book? Yeah. It's like how you have to write a prospectus for your dissertation, basically. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. And so we thought that we had gotten everything together and I had sent it to our acquisitions person. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to need CVs or not CVs, sorry, abstracts from all of your authors. And we were like there's going to be 12 chapters in this. And she's like, yep. So we had to sit there and email and try to get everybody to send it in, which nobody really got it in on time. So it was an extra three weeks of making sure we got all our abstracts for each individual chapter. So that was a lot of work, but thank you to our contributors. They gave us really great abstracts. I think it really sealed the deal for our, for our proposal. Yeah. And I think they were all, they were all pretty excited too. Like, it wasn't just like, tell me more about it. We were like, this is from the onset, like, this is what we want to do. This is the purpose. And then everyone who responded back, because I think we ended up hitting up like 15 or 16 indigenous 
scholars yeah and all the people that did respond responded overwhelmingly positive like yeah i got this and it's a lot of students too Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that we had to specifically put in our proposal was that, yeah, we understand that these are a bunch of young scholars who are, you know, up and coming. But, you know, majority of paradigm shifts within disciplines happen because graduate students are looking back at the old literature, looking at the theory and, and thinking, what how can we apply this to our current research and what does this look like in the future? So shout out to my advisor, Dr. Pyburn, for being like, no, think about how gender shifted in archaeology and and theoretically, you know, that was young graduate students who were thinking about those things. So she was like, you have to put that in there. And our acquisitions person is like, yeah, make sure you you talk about how important it is that it's young people who are doing this kind of work. So, yeah, I think that that also was really like strong in our proposal. That's, that's really cool. And it'll, you know, I guess another aspect to it is that you guys all get to add this into your CV and that becomes something that boosts the potential for future jobs, future, anything like that. So I think that's really cool that it's kind of this, this focus on a paradigm shift while actively promoting indigenous archaeology and ideas. And I think that's, it's, it's brilliant. I think you guys, that's super cool. When we are in theory class and you just mentioned that like, you know, it's a paradigm shift with gender archaeology, you know, in the sixties, right. We have to read all that stuff like Sally Slocum and you know the feminist wave of archaeology. We got to read that stuff. So now there's like a huge indigenous push in archaeology. And there's obviously with the black lives matter movement, there's going to be that kind of push with your guys' volume, like, is it weird to you guys that like your book's going to be used in like theory classes and stuff? Or like, have you thought about that yet? Cause it is weird. Like I, you guys are talking about it. That's what I'm thinking of, but I don't know. Has that sunk in? I don't think it's sunk in yet. I don't know for Carlton, but you know, one of the things in the proposal was, you know, who is the the audience for this? And we we thought really long and hard about that because it's like a lot of times it's just for, you know, academics. But what does that actually mean? And we talked about, you know, Carlton and I have both taught now intro to archaeology courses. And there's not really a book that talks specifically about what does this look like on the ground? How does this actually help communities? And I know that my own students were, you know, asking like, okay, this seems really cool. And I think we should definitely include native people in archaeology, but how do we actually do that? And their, and their archaeology book wasn't telling them that. It was just saying, you know, yeah, there's been some people who've written about this and not really telling them exactly how to do it. And if we're going to create a bunch of archaeologists, whether it's CRM archaeologists or academic ones or, you know, wherever they work, I think they need to know exactly what this looks like on the ground within communities. So that's kind of our thinking. Carlton, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I think for me, going back to that, I think we ended up taking like five shots of tequila. That that whole purpose of me trying to say, like, we need to change archaeology. And, and as Emily said, like we reflected on like up until that point and, and still, unfortunately, today in 2020, all the indigenous archaeology is from an indigenous perspective is is really theoretical. Now, I've seen collaborative work done in Mesoamerica in the Southwest where they talk about using it and how oral tra- how working with the community on oral traditions is great. But that's that's kind of been the focus. And so when when looking at a what I see as a methods volume, really 
that's applying theory into and, and practice through a multitude of ways. Like it's not just archaeology. We have Lydia Curlis from the Nipmuc Nation at Brown University Library. She's we're, she's looking at through library curation. And then we also have museum folks. So it's not just the artifacts coming out of the ground, but also what happens to objects and cultural patrimony once it leaves the field. And how does this indigenous way of thinking about the past move beyond just excavation, but also into collections? And then how is the data um, distributed and curated? So it's like a holistic approach. And because of this, you know, the core of our audience is, and we met, mentioned this in our book, like this is not meant for like tenured professors because to me and, and Emily, it's kind of too late for them. So we're writing it towards undergraduates tribal historic preservation officers, NACPRA officers. So it's really written for the next generation. So that way they have this toolkit from early on that they can reflect on and, and work towards. Because that's what we're kind of looking at is like, how do we take this and showcase this and then move it, move it forward? So that's kind of the, the goal of this is that addressing something that we wish we had early on in our graduate careers. Well, I guess the reason I asked that is the next time you guys have like an inkling of, I have imposter syndrome or something like that, you know, like when that creeps up, I don't know if you've seen those TikToks where it's like the guy standing in the doorway and then like the weird, like evil thought like appears out of the closet or something like that. Yes. I've seen those. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. You have this book now. So like, I think you guys should be pretty proud of that because it's pretty cool. I just talk into the wind on other stuff. But actually, there was. Uh, thank you, David. That, I, that does mean a lot. One of our chapters in this book, the one that me and Emily are co co authoring, it's called "Applying Indigenous Ethicality in the 21st Century and Beyond." And like a major part of that comes from your work in social media and other people's work in social media. Not saying that you've done anything wrong, but like recognizing that there's a need for conversation about like, well, how do you represent Indigenous people? Mm -hmm. online in the 21st century. And that was really like, we, I'm starting to pull this together now because we, Emily can talk about this next about tag coming up. Yeah. So it's actually like giving back to you in terms of like what you've done is that you've inspired us to write a chapter um, specifically focused on your success. Yeah, David, you've done a really interesting job on, on social media. And so we wanted to highlight that and we wanted to think about You know how, yeah, like Carlton said, how do people represent Native people online? You know, Native people obviously can represent themselves, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't not talk about Native folks, especially when it comes to archaeology. So what does that look like and how can you do that ethically? Sure. Well, I'm glad I I can help in any way. It's nice to know it's doing something. Yeah, I actually planned on a group conversation with us and then the Avengers, like basically having other other people who do all this social media work, what would they like to know or examples that they've done so that I can include it into the chapter. So this this was kind of like me surprising you guys on air, like this is coming out. You guys have both you, David and, and also Connor, your guys's contributions to this upcoming book, which you guys will be recognized for. Surprise. <laughs> Every week, I don't want to say this loud on air. My therapist is always like, say something nice about yourself. And I like just straight up can't because I have to joke. And she's like, one thing. And I'm like, I brush my, I brush, 
I brushed my teeth in the kitchen so I don't look at myself. And she's like, no, say something nice. I can say this now. So we're good. <laughs> that took a turn. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> that get dark. And then I, I guess just to, to wrap this up, it was it was Emily's idea to, since our session at SAA's 2020, was canceled that we thought now that we have the edited volume and we notified our authors, Emily's like, we should present on TAG at TAG, the theoretical archaeological group conference uh, coming up, which will be virtual as a means to like, we have everyone's abstracts, but to start the presentation so we can try to keep to the deadline. And if if it's okay with you guys, can I just read the authors and the nations that, that we have on the, on the volume as, because some of them listen and I think it'd be great to kind of highlight them. Absolutely. No. So thank you, David. Emily C. Van Alts, Lakota, Carlton Shield Chief Gover, Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma, of course, Lydia Curlis, Nipmuc Nation, Brown University Library, Patrick Cruz, Okawinge, Pueblo, University of Colorado Boulder, Honey Constant, Sturgeon Lake First Nation, Saskatchewan, University of Saskatchewan, Wenuskuin Heritage Park, Sonia Miller. I don't know how to say her last name. I don't either, and I feel really bad, but we love you, Sonia. <laughs> yeah, Lytton Band of Pomo Indians, Zoe Eddy, Huron Wendot, Ojibwe, Assistant Director of Undergraduate Anthropology Department, Harvard University, Nicholas C. Lalook, White Mountain Apache, Northern Arizona University, Department of Anthropology, Assistant Professor, Ashley Thompson, Red Lake Ojibwe, PhD candidate, Department of Anthropology, University of Arizona. Aaron B. Bryan, Absolute Nation, Big Lodge Clan, Research Core Team, Indigenous Research Center and Faculty, Tribal Historic Preservation at Salish Kootenai College. S. Margaret Spivey Faulkner, shout out to Dr. Shane Miller for introducing. She's PD. Uh, Assistant Professor, Department of Anthropology, University of Alberta. K. Kakendasat Matinee, Loon Clan Citizen, Potawatomi Nation, PhD student at University of Massachusetts in Department of Anthropology. And yeah, that's it. So uh, we we got 12 different nations represented from all across the country. So not just Southwest, but kind of a smattering of people from the Southwest, Plains, Southeast, Northeast, and Canada. Um, so really trying to represent the U.S. and Canada holistically as we can. So, And that will be it for this session. Please join us after these messages for segment three with Emily Van Alst here on episode 39. Welcome back to episode 39 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We're talking with Emily Van Alst. I wanted to ask both Carlton and Emily, you alluded to that you have multiple articles within this edited volume. And I wanted to kind of hear what those are about. So Emily, if you don't mind talking about one of your 16 ones that you are a part of? Yeah. So, and I think this goes for a lot of the other chapters in the volume because a lot of us are young scholars. It's kind of based on our own research. So for me, my own chapter is going to be about um, my sort of methods, like an indigenized rock art method. Exactly what does that look like? It's not something that's really been conceived of yet. So I'm hoping that this chapter is is going to kind of serve double as like also my dissertation methods chapter, or at least this will be a good like practice run, I guess, before my dissertation. But yeah, it's it's essentially the sort of methods I laid out in the first section of, you know, I'm going to be doing interviews uh, with community members about their sort of their cultural background related to the images I'm looking at. 
And then I'm going to hopefully be able to take community members to rock art sites that they've historically been denied access to. So there's this sort of returning process that I hope happens. Um, And then actually interpreting rock art images there. So a lot of the times when it comes to rock art methods, you go, you take photos, maybe some measurements of some images, and then you take it sort of back to the lab, so to speak, and to analyze. But I want to see Native people engaging with the rock art that the way that they think needs to happen. I'm also doing this sort of method called cultural mapping, which is sort of big in like environmental anthro, but I'm going to see if I can apply it to archaeological methods. It's called going on a walkabout. So essentially you walk the landscape and you're interviewing, you know, community members. So not just in front of the rock art panel, but sort of the like larger landscape around the rock art site. I'm also going to do a floral inventory. So looking at are there particular plants that are there that Native people still use today? Um, Were those plants planted there on accident or on purpose? Um, I've noticed in my preliminary work that there has been really important plants that Native people use in ceremony. And so I'm hoping that combining all those methods will create a more indigenized method of understanding rock art. So we're not understanding rock art as art, but we're understanding it as almost like an archive and a knowledge system. And so it's just much more than this sort of Western art tradition, which is how rock art is normally analyzed. So that's sort of my chapter of bringing together the sort of Western archaeology rock art methods, but really bringing in the sort of indigenous rock art method that I hope to sort of create, I guess, out of this project. That's super cool. That's that's super awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm excited to I'm excited to read it at some point when Carlton gives us free copies. Carlton, yeah. <laughs> what is your chapter about? So I was planning on giving you and David both a copy because I'm I think we're given what was it five or five or seven, Emily? We get we get free copies. Yeah, I think it's five or seven free copies, and then we get forty percent off after that. Yeah. So contracts. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. So I think, yeah, that that was that was my plan. Anyways, oh, you're, you're, you're too nice, man. You're way too nice. Yeah, you guys deal with me in my highly organized sense of this entire project. So there has to be some benefit. Use it as a you know table stabilizer. I don't care. My chapter is, it's basically how I did my master's thesis, which is heavily invested in the use of Bayesian statistical analysis using the program OxCal. And so I've, in my experience and the experience of other people that are familiar with Bayesian and OxCal, it's a pretty intimidating process because it's a very specific form of coding. So my chapter is is a review of my thesis and basically a step-by-step guide of, of my code, why I chose the code, how I analyzed indigenous oral traditions, through a critical lens that you would usually do of any historical account to pick out the information necessary to provide background, explaining the code itself in more layman's terms that I understand. I've had to read some articles several times, actually once a month, I have a day set out and this is a shout out to Eric Robinson for recommending this, that I basically the um, first Wednesday of every month, I break out my old Bayesian papers and I reread six papers. And every time I read them, I add more notes because I rem- find something new. So I wanted to condense that process and provide better access to other scholars, not just indigenous scholars, about how you can use Bayesian in your collaborative approaches to understanding indigenous histories prior to Columbus. And and in particular, when talking about the Plains Southwest and the West prior to Spanish colonization. So 
it, it, I, unlike Emily, I'm not really going to be able to use this for my dissertation, but it, it's more of something that I think is critical because there is a uh, a barrier for any archaeologist who wants to use Oxcal in a with sophisticated models rather than just pure plugging in a date to get whatever it sits on the radiocarbon curve. So mine will be much more methods based and probably not a, an enjoyable read. So that's that's kind of why I was like, Emily, we need to do a social media chapter because I know that one will probably get cited more in general and, and be more applicable to not just indigenous people, but everybody like, oh, right. We're in the 21st century. Maybe we can utilize some of these or at least provide a guide that I've noticed. Uh, you know, I get questions not just from David and Connor, but others who are like, hey, how do I represent indigenous people or what are what's the right way to go about it? So I was like, you know, we, if we had a book chapter about it, then we have a source where we can send people to. And if there's faults in that, they can blame us rather than taking any heat from the Internet. So also very cool. I love Bayesian and statistics, so I'm, I'm super stoked on that. It's exhilarating stuff. I think Eric Robinson will hate it, but he'll, he's going to help. He'll help me. He'll help me edit it, and then I'll make sure it's good with him. But yeah, it's. It, I just think it, it's something that needed to. You know, it's more of an impetus of the necessity rather than like. Believe me, writing about Bayesian is not what I want to do, but it, it just needs to be done. So yeah, absolutely, and especially if you spend so much time working on things like that, you might as well put it out into the world for other people to to use. You know, absolutely. Bayesian. All about that Bayesian. Oh, no, Jesus. No trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Maybe next time, Connor. So I guess I'll just segue into this. This The way that we wanted to finalize this is that through the course of this podcast, we have interviewed indigenous people. We've talked about indigenous issues. And something that I feel has come up, especially if you listen to some of our previous episodes where we talked to non-Indigenous people, that there is a tight, a metaphorical tightrope that people walk when talking about Indigenous issues in their work. I've had discussions, you know, with Connor and, and David when they ask for advice. And so what I wanted to do here with Emily being present is to provide a, a space in which, you know, David and Connor can ask questions about indigenous archaeologies or protocol from a place of like genuinely wanting to know, not out of ignorance, but like I, you know, just giving them the opportunity to ask questions that maybe Emily can answer. So that is what this is. And so, yeah, this is really a, an open, open forum to ask maybe some questions that Connor and David have. Connor, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first one. And this, I don't think this ever got... <laughs> Resolve for me, but David had posted something about an indigenous group of people, and he got a lot of flack for using the past tense when referring to them. And I guess, I guess it makes sense that we should refer to them in the present tense going forward. But how would how would you recommend that we ultimately deal with that, especially because there's a lot of different names and nomenclatures that are used as part of this. Can I add to that before Emily answers, if you don't mind? Yeah. Yeah. So with that specific one, what made it so difficult was like, I was talking about like the, the archeological culture of the, you know, the Iroquois groups of New York and Canada. And I wasn't sure, like obviously 
I don't think they, the entire group subsides on spearfishing uh, with like firelight spearfishing is what I was talking about. So I said like, you know, they used to do that in that sense, but then like also their political system, I said like they would vote or something like that on in a democratic system and things like that. Or they, the clan mothers would vote for sachems who represented the government. But then in that case, they still do do that. But in the other part of the post, it's like, that's kind of in the past, you know? And it then somebody was like, but it still needs to be present tense. And it's still, it's like, it's a tightrope, you know, as Connor, I think just said. So it's obviously a very difficult thing to write about native people in the present who also had ancestors who had agency and did things in the past. I take a lot of my own, the way that I write about native people in my community, sort of from native American and indigenous studies. I think reading that type of literature, I think is incredibly helpful when trying to write about native people. And I know for myself, I've struggled with this and I've, I've gotten feedback on grants and on papers before of like, you switch a lot between the present and the past when you're writing. And for me, it's very difficult because it's like, it's sort of what you're running into, David. It's like, okay, well, traditionally we would do this thing that we still do today. So it's like, how do you write about that? And being respectful to Native people when writing about their ancestors um, and the actions of their ancestors. For me, because it's been, it's a very like difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. I normally start my paragraphs with like, today, as in the past, Lakota women X, Y, and Z. Or I'll say like, today we do this one thing. Traditionally, we, we we do this thing that is very similar to what we do today. So I think that sort of, you were on the right track, right? With like connecting the past and the present and that that line seems sort of blurred when you're when you're reading through something sometimes. Right. It's a really hard thing to do, but I definitely say like, read through Native and Indigenous Studies papers and books because the way that they write is like, I think the way to do it. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any book recommendations for Caleb Welch? <laughs> um, I don't know. It depends on the, the topic. I mean, native studies is so vast that, um, there, there's just so much. I mean, maybe if you are an archeologist or anthropologist, I recommend reading Ella Deloria and Beatrice Medicine. I think they do a really good job at looking at the, like writing about native people in the present, um, and connecting it to the, to the past and to, to ancestors would be my two recommendations. I think Carlton was joking because <laughs> Caleb Welch always asks that on, I think, every post or so. Oh, I know. I know. That's why a lot of people But yeah, I, I think that was a good answer because especially with that post, like I, and that leads into my next question too, because it, I guess this is twofold, but I waited a long time to post that one because I wanted to make sure it was right. And I spent a long time editing it and I sent it to my editor. He edited it and it was good. And then I was like, okay, I think this is fine enough to post. And then I finally posted it. I reached out to a, uh, like an Iroquois museum up in uh, New York and they were like, yeah, sure. We'll take a look at it. We'll send it to a, a Seneca interpreter. And that's cool. And they like, I sent it and then like, just never got back to me. And they said, yeah, they took a look at it. And that's like all I like heard. Cool. And they just like never got back afterwards. And they're probably busy or whatever, but 
then I was just like kind of waiting and I had to post the, cause I have like a schedule I kind of like go with. And then I was like, all right, I'll just post it. And they said it was great. Like after I posted it and they're like, good job. But then like the person that had made that comment about, you know, like these people still exist. You should use this in present tense. And they said it very nicely. I just can't remember what it was. It's like, I put so much time into that and did everything I could to make it correct. And then, I mean, I could probably could have done more, but then like a whole bunch of people like that one comment and then just like people read it and think like, oh, this guy sucks. But I'm sure they don't think that, but it's just like, dang it, you can't win, you know, but it still did well. And then like people still learn. So it's whatever to me, but I don't know. It, it's difficult. And like you said, when you're writing that paper, it's just, it's easy to switch between past and present tense in general when writing. So it's just hard. And kind of, kind of going off of that, what is the best way for us, people who are interested in, in different groups, what is the best method of collaboration if we're going to post something about different indigenous peoples or talk about something that we might have kind of an idea about? What, what is the best, best method for that kind of collaboration? I think that you, you had like the right intention, David, of like finding, you know, not just like the most random, like, you know, person who's related to to the Iroquois Confederacy and being like, hey, can you look at this? But like finding an education or cultural center or like a museum, like you said, that that deals with that. So you're not asking a random native person for their labor just because they happen to be indigenous. But, you know, going specifically to somewhere that that is what they specialize in is sort of cultural education. So that I think that totally makes sense as a first start. I think collaboration seems easier said than done. And so (laughs) it can be incredibly challenging because like, yeah, you want to post something, but Native people don't necessarily owe you their time, right? Like that sounds kind of crappy, but at the same time, like Native people have other issues in their communities that they're dealing with. Yeah. And so, but I think, you know, reaching out to a cultural center is a, is a great start. Or if you know a Native person who works in that realm, reaching out, I think totally makes sense. But collaboration is a lot of relationship building. So I think it can be really hard, especially if this is like an Instagram post, right? Like a lot of the stuff that I've read that is about community archaeology community-based practices when doing this type of work is that you spend years building relationships with native people. It's not just sort of like a one time you ask something and then you go, it's a, it's a constant building of that relationship. So I think it'd be really hard to do that collaboration, especially at first, because you have to do a lot of work in building that relationship and building trust, right? Like native people don't necessarily trust the anthropologists and archeologists. We all know that that history there is tense and it's dark. Um, and so it can be really hard for a native person to just give you information. So building that, that relationship and, and gaining that trust from communities, I think is really important. I don't have a solid answer when it comes to like social media and like a post about a, a community. Carlton, I don't know if you want to add anything. Cause I, I don't have a, like a perfect answer for this. Someone straight up just DM'd me and said, hey, can I send you a copy of my book to read? Speaking of like, I don't owe anybody my time. Like, screw you. (laughs) Yeah, I know like, especially when it comes to social media, because it's kind of like a new way of collaboration. 
it, it can be tricky, especially like in the middle of COVID, right? There's a lot going on. It's hard to get a hold of people in general. I do know like the artist that David commissioned, she reached out to me. And I think I scared her on accident because she like reached out like, hey, do you know anything about the Iroquois? And I was like on a hike with my family and I have like an impulsive need that if I get an email, text or Instagram message, I have to respond then and there. So I was like, best practice would just be to, you know, reach out to the Iroquois Tippo and like period sent. And when I got back home, I was like thinking about it. I was like, just to let you know, I was like on a family hike. I didn't mean that to be curt, but like, you know, it's just because I'm a plains. I don't know anything really about the Iroquois. Like, that's why I was telling you to do that. And she was like, oh my God, thank you so much. Because like, I kind of thought I overstepped boundaries. Like I really like ruins. And I was like really scared or upset. You, I was like, no, 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 no. I was, I was just kind of busy and this is where it came from. But you know, it's, I don't really have an answer either because it, it, it's really, you know, you have, you have a party and in this case, David, who's doing best practices and like right. trying to make sure that they're representing the group. Cause like David's passion for indigenous peoples, both like not only in North America, but also in Europe and others is comes from a good place in the heart. Like it's, he's passionate. This is his job and he's spreading it to the other people. And he wants to make sure that the information that he is, you know, posting about is accurate. And another isn't like a social media liaison to a tribe. And, and I, and knowing David from this original, I think he mentioned this to me in July and the post came out like late September. I've been working on it for a while. Yeah. Uh, or early September that he, he had sat on that. He's like, I waited a month. I haven't heard back. And, you know, ultimately they reached back out afterwards and said, Oh no, that was great. You know? And it's, it, it, it's part of that thing we've been struggling with as anthropologists and just researchers in general who work on indigenous communities across the globe. It's like, at what point is it our ethical responsibility to not pursue academia or do something because we haven't heard back? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think if I'm pretty positive, if the Iroquois came back and said, you know, said totally no to David, he would have been like, okay. But like a non-answer is a gray area. Yep. And it's also in the context of COVID. And as you said, Emily, they don't owe him your time. I imagine like if they did read it and had huge problems with it, they would have come out and said, you know, go F yourself. That was kind of my thought with it, too. They would have been like, whoa, no. (laughs) Yeah. White is sus. (laughs) I mean, like I've seen this and this has been my experience on the Pawnee Nation Museum Board is like we get more often than not. Now that I think about it, like tribal members will hit us up on stuff they see on social media and they'll go through, you know, a tribal store preservation officer, NAGPRA officer, and say, this is not acceptable. Like the one I think that happened over the summer was when the Pawnee State Historic Museum in Kansas showed our medicine bundles. And there was like a vehement response against it where then we got involved and said, you need to take this off. And they did. And then there was another experience where there was a Pawnee descendant who was talking about, and Emily was involved in this. She made it aware to me. He's like, this guy is talking about the Pawnee star bundle and talking about it online. And I had to get in there. I was like, not only is this not a bundle, but this is inaccurate. And the dude was kind of a prick about it. I mean, he blocked me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> he blocked Emily. Cause Emily's like, you shouldn't be showing bundles. And he's like, well, I'm a Pawnee descendant. And I ended up reaching out to the tippo and he's like, he has no <laughs> permission to talk about our bundles. And then, so he ended up like messaging him and we're like, who is this guy? And, we were like, who? And we were like connecting the dots. And he was, he's a tribal citizen of another group. And he just happens to have like a grandmother who's Pawnee, who all of a sudden is like 
wants to talk about Pawnee stuff. But not only is he doing it wrong, like he didn't show a bundle. It wasn't a bundle and everything he talked about it was just incorrect. Yeah. So there's that form of scholarship. And he has thousands of followers on Twitter that liked it. They're like, oh my God. I'm like, this is the real issue because this is not accurate information. My last question for you guys would be, and this is my biggest struggle that I like lay awake at night with sometimes. And it it's not just with like indigenous posts, but like just other posts, but you know, with the whole aspect of decolonization and like checking myself and, you know, thinking critically about what I'm doing at what point am I actually helping and not just me, like us with the podcast and, you know, with the, the, the ruins Instagram as well, just, am I helping people with these posts? Like, am I helping get indigenous culture out there? Cause I do get messages from like Australians and Europeans that are like, wow, I never knew that. Or like, wow, I didn't, I had never heard of that like tribe before, which I think was when I got the other day. Or at what point is it that I'm just putting a culture on display, like a mask in a museum, which is the original problem that Boaz kind of was like, nah, to, you know, and I don't know where that line is. And it's weird. And I struggle. Like, am I just virtue signaling sometimes? But like, I have good intentions, I guess. Yeah, I think it can be incredibly difficult. Like, I have to say, like, even sometimes as a native person, I'm like, I'm in this academic thing and I'm, I'm doing archaeology, but like, is this actually helping anybody? And I think that can be the case in social media, you know, when you're when you're posting ab- about, you know, native people. And I was going to say, like, <laughs> native people, if something's wrong with your post, a native person will find it and tell you because For I. Sure. I have been (laughs) I've been part of like native people going after people selling native jewelry and art who are not native on Instagram, like native people will find the posts and they'll tell you if it's wrong. And I know how much effort and time you put into those posts, David, because you and I have worked on some, you know, gender posts before about like gender and archaeology before. So I know you're putting the time and the effort into it. But yeah, I think it's a hard question of like, how much does an incredibly colonial discipline actually help people who are trying to dismantle that discipline? It's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we... We will keep working on it, hopefully as a discipline and as folks keep having these conversations. We should write an article. I think that's that's what it comes down to is like we should the three of us and, and Emily and others should like write an article about it. Yeah, that's my yeah. solution. Absolutely. Well, we just interviewed a PhD candidate, Emily Van Alls from IU Bloomington. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us and giving us a place, at least me and Dave, a place to ask, ask questions that might be uncomfortable for us. So thank you very much for being on. And where can people find you social media wise? I am on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Emily Van Awesome on both of those platforms. And I think Carlton, does our book come out in 20? I think it's spring of 2022. So look out. Yes. The <laughs> final draft is due October in 2021. And then the book is supposed to come out. We'll never make the deadline. That's, I mean, but you know, oh, tentatively no. think of 2022 sometime yeah. there. That's when. Look out for it, people. All right. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Crappy joke, crappy joke. Here's a crappy joke. So this joke comes from the series of dad jokes sent from my father. So this is dad jokes from my dad. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you call a bundle of hay in a church? Oh, holy moly. Um, holy hay. Holy hay. <laughs> Christian Bale. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's good. Ten out of ten. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. <laughs> Thank you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.